Am I on? There we go. Um, before we get into the sermon, I want to uh, make a couple of announcements. One is an update, and then one is something I just found out this morning. Um, I mentioned last week that Lois Mole had surgery, um, so I have talked to her this week, and the surgery went great. The healing and everything for the surgery has gone great. But she has to do some rehab, and there's a hang-up with insurance stuff. Um, and so the last I heard was that she was just going to remain in the hospital until they had all of that lined up and secured. So there's a concern about her going home since she's alone um, without something in place. So they were, there was frustration, obviously, with that situation. And uh, her family was trying to figure out what to do. So that's the last I know. Um, hopefully I'll get another update sometime soon. Um, and then some of you, if you've been a part of this church for a while, I mentioned it in Sunday school. Um, some of you may know a family, Rick, his name was Ricardo, but he went by Rick and Becky Morrow. Um, I got a phone call from her today, and she wanted me to let the church know that Rick passed away last Sunday. Um, and um, she's going to get me all of the information concerning funeral service and um, the celebration of life that they'll do um, after the service. And as soon as I get all that information, I will get that out to you guys. And if you know people who went here that when they were here that aren't here today. Um, if you have contact information for those people, um, I told her I would try to get that to, to our church and that we would try to reach out to the people that um, no longer come to our church that might know them so that they would know the information as well. Um, but uh, please be praying for Becky. Uh, she got choked up on the phone with me. It wasn't an expected situation, so I think she's still struggling with that quite a bit. All right. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3, find verse 22. Colossians 3, 22 is where we're going to start. <clears throat> On Thursday, we went to see a comedian that my family loves named Brian Regan. He was in Peoria. <clears throat> and he tells a story about working in a toy store when he was younger. Um, and his job was to assemble bicycles. Uh, um, he didn't tell this story on Thursday, but I've, I've heard this before. He, he was supposed to assemble bicycles. So one day a coworker of his said, hey, I know, I know a place where we can go where you don't have to put any bikes together. And, um, <laughs> and Brian asked him, well, what's going to happen at the end of the day when no bikes are put together? And he's like, I don't know. We'll figure that out later. So he's like, okay. So he followed this guy into the, the warehouse. And he said, there's a row of bikes in front of a wall. And so they walked be between the bikes and the wall. And he said, there's a big hole in the, in the drywall that was big enough to kind of crawl through. So the guy crawls through, and Brian follows him. And, and he said, they had to like shimmy like this. He said, we went about eight feet away from the hole and the guy stopped and the guy goes, beats working, huh? 
And Brian says, it's kind of a toss-up. <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking about surrendering our work ethic to Christ, um, uh, taking our, our job, whether, whatever our role is, whether it's somebody we, as an employee that we work for or as somebody who's a supervisor or a manager with people working under them. We're going to be talking about how to make Christ preeminent in how we choose to do our job and how we view that. Because I'm sure that we've all had experiences or seen people who are like <coughs> the guy that worked with Brian. So <coughs> let's, excuse me, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. That's where we're going to start. We're going to go through verse chapter 4, verse 1. If you're able to stand, would you please stand, honor God, as we read his word. So we've, been, we've talked about God, Christ being preeminent in our marriage, and we've talked about Christ being preeminent in our family and our relationship with our kids as parent-child relationship. And Paul goes on here, and he says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us your word. We know that if you had never revealed yourself to us and had never revealed your word to us that it, you would still be God. It would not change truth. But because you revealed it to us, we can now get a glimpse into your character. We can get a glimpse into what you call us to do call us to be, how you call us to think. And today, as we talk about making Christ preeminent and changing the way we think and approach our uh, jobs, help us to uh, be able to, to see the wisdom in that and to see how, how this is the best way to approach not just our jobs, but anything in life, with Christ being number one in our life. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, go on and have a seat. <coughs> First point in your notes we're going to look at is serve the <coughs> excuse me, serve the Lord by serving others. I'm going to turn this off for a second. I needed a really good one. <laughs> so I'm going to do it again. Sorry. All right, so serve the Lord by serving others. Um, what we need to remember whenever we're approaching anything in life 
is that we are, we are representatives of Christ on earth. If we belong to him, then we represent him, and he expects us to represent him accurately and, and to represent him well. So we're not to, in this particular situation, like how the slave is to work or, um, or we are to work in terms of our jobs, we are not to work to please an earthly master alone, like our job is, just, is not just for his benefit, uh, but it's to please first and foremost God. If we view our work not as work but as an act of worship, then we're motivated to give our best. Whether or not our earthly master or our boss um, is watching or whether or not our earthly master or our boss is deserving, if we view it as an act of worship, then we will be motivated to give our best. So what Paul does here in this text is he addresses the heart of the issue. If you're a slave, as he's, as he's writing to the Colossians, if you're a slave, you know, do we do our work to be pleasing to God or do we do it because some outside circumstance has forced us uh, to, to be in this situation and to do something against our will? Or if we are the master, uh, which we're going to get into more in point number two, but if we're the master, do we treat those under our authority as we would treat Christ, or do we treat them as unworthy of respect, someone whose only, only purpose in the, at this particular time in their life is to serve our needs and our desires? And so Paul's getting at the heart of the issue here for both slaves and masters. Um, because this is a common problem it's, it's still going on today, uh, as I just gave you an example. Uh, this is a common problem. It must have been a problem there, or else I don't think Paul would have addressed it, like we've talked before. But Paul doesn't just put things in his letters that don't have any application to the people that are reading them. So it must have been an issue going on at that time in the, in the Roman world. Um, slaves only working hard when their masters were looking or, or you know, something similar to that. Um, and it's too common today. I told, I told the story about Brian Regan at the beginning, but I'm going to give you uh, a story of my own. In fact, you're going to hear a lot today about my time working at Kohl's because there's a lot in this text that I could have used someone to speak truth into my life when I worked there. So you're going to hear at least three situations about my time there. Um, I worked third shift at Kohl's for almost six years. Two of those years, I was the, um, I was full-time and I was the operations supervisor. The very first week that I was the supervisor, so we're talking really early on, so early that my boss stayed overnight that week to help me transition into the position. So, like, I have, I had not learned much. So that first week, someone, that was on my team had um, gone upstairs and on their way back down they said hey um, just so you know so-and-so is upstairs sleeping on one of the shelves and so I saw it I went and got my boss because I wasn't sure exactly how to handle it and she came with me and we woke him up and we said so um, what's going on and um, he said oh man like I was, I was putting this box here on the shelf and I backed up to kind of look at it and I just fell asleep 
the shelf he was sleeping on was about this high. He didn't just fall on it and fall asleep. You have to push yourself up to get on it. So, um, yeah, he went home for good. Um, but we all know people who do this, right? Like people, they take breaks or they slow down their work habits when the boss isn't around, right? Proverbs 14, 23. So this is Solomon. Why is this man, why is this human only, only human? Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. So the wisest human to ever live says this, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. God wants us to approach our work ethic as, it's an, as if it's an act of worship. And if we're, at, if we're approaching it that way, then we're going to put in the hard work. God tells us that when our boss's eyes are no longer on us, you know, you need to keep working just as hard because God's eyes are always on us, right? And it's an act of worship. So the question is, who are you when no one's looking? I think Bill Hybels wrote a book called that or something like that. Um, who, who are you, who, who you are or who are you when no one's looking? That's the question. Because the work that we do is a way that we worship God. And if that's true... Should we give God only half of our worship, or should we give him our full devotion? So Paul instructs the slave here in, in Colossians, he instructs them not to, not to be preoccupied with other things, that it would be really easy to be preoccupied. If I was a slave, I would be really preoccupied with how do I get out of this situation, trying to figure out any way I can. And Paul doesn't instruct them to be like, seeking out their freedom or to be seeking out, any, um, you know, like a better treatment. He, like, he could have gone into that, but he didn't. What, all, he get, all he gives them is work, even when your master is not looking, work as hard as you can as if you are working not for him but for God. Give your all, all the time. And the reason why Paul does that is because he's got priorities in his writing. I'm sure that Paul would have desired that there would have been no need for any kind of slave labor, but he has specific priorities in his writing. And I'm, I'm going to go into this because there are people who have been critical of Paul who have said, you're writing a letter, you're talking about freedom in Christ, you should have instructed them to free their slaves, to, to no longer have this system that was in place in the Roman Empire. And so people have been critical of that, but that was not Paul's purpose in writing. There are priorities as Paul writes. Um, and so we need to understand something about his purpose as he's writing and he's discipling these young churches that exist in the Roman Empire. First, the slavery of the Bible, the, the people who are critical of Paul tend to be people who are from America or from the West. They have a in their minds, they have a different concept of what slavery was at the time because of what slavery was in our own country so many years ago. And so we need to understand that the slavery of the Bible wasn't the same thing as the institution of slavery in America um, in our early years. Slavery in the Roman Empire was more like an indentured servitude type situation, which usually came because somebody owed a debt to somebody and they couldn't pay it. So they made themselves a servant in that person's uh, 
house or, or in the field or whatever to work off the debt. Now, that does not mean that masters were always nice. It doesn't mean that they, that they you know, treated them with respect. That's not necessarily the case. However, there's a big difference between that and what we saw in America so many years ago where the, the understanding, the mindset was your race or your color of skin makes you not even human, your property. That was completely different. <coughs> so we need to understand that, that first of all, slavery was different from what is typical in our minds as we think of it. Because if slavery in the Roman Empire was more like what we dealt with in America, where they were devaluing human life, life that was made in the image of God, I'm sure Paul would have taken that on as being a change agent in the culture. But it was different. The second thing that I think we need to understand is that Paul's not trying to initiate any kind of unraveling of the social fabric of the Roman Empire. <coughs> in fact, Paul doesn't really try to overturn social norms often in his writings. That's where his priority comes in. His priority is not to go in and just overturn and upset everything that has been socially grounded for who knows how long. His desire is rather to shepherd new believers in a worldview that understands that their current situation needs to be viewed through Christ's preeminence. Whether you're slave or master, Paul says, you need to understand Christ is preeminent. Christ is number one in your life. Does this need to be Auto. So, Paul's not concerned about undoing society. He's more concerned about teaching you that whatever situation you find yourself in in life, you need to view that through the eyes or the perspective of Christ being preeminent in your life. Which means you take whatever you do and however you, re however you react, good situation or bad situation, however you react, you react in a way that worships Christ. How do I take my current situation, good or bad, and turn that into an act of worship? Because Christ is worthy of our praise. We are commanded to be thankful in all circumstances, and that doesn't mean it's always good. In fact, Paul is very clear in his other writings about how he went through all kinds of stuff that were not good situations, and yet, he said, I've learned to be content because I've learned to trust in Christ. He strengthens me. I've learned to be content in these situations. And so Paul took bad situations and turned them into times of worship. He was jailed. He, he was chained to a wall in a dungeon, and it's midnight. You know, most people are asleep, and Paul's singing praises to God to, be, to show a grateful heart. So that's Paul's priority in his writings. His priority was the preeminence of Christ in the life of, in this particular verse here, the slave. For the slave, if Christ is not preeminent, then something earthly takes that place. Something earthly becomes number one, right? 
be that freedom or social standing or rebounding into a life of wealth or security, whatever it is, if Christ is not preeminent, then something earthly, something temporal becomes preeminent. That becomes the number one priority in the life of the slave if it's not Christ. If the earthly thing that is preeminent in the life of the slave, um, if, if, that, if, if the slave makes something else other than Christ preeminent, and it's something earthly, if he loses sight of the eternal, then the question is, what is there to live for other than that which is temporary and material on this earth? Be, and, uh, and Paul would say, any of the biblical writers would say that the things of this earth disappoint. They fail. They leave you wanting. So if you live for only the temporal, then uh, honestly, what moral boundaries do you have to keep you from doing whatever you want? What moral boundaries would you have to abide by if all you're living for is the here and now? <coughs> by earthly standards, why not beat or kill the master in order to free yourself from your bondage? The problem is that would violate Romans 12, 11 and 12, which there are lots of verses we could pull from this, but but Paul is writing to the church of Rome. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, <clears throat> there are times when God does call on his people or on someone to be a voice for those who have no voice. There are times when God calls people to fight for those who can't stand up and defend themselves. But Paul's not, <clears throat> Paul's not going to give this sweeping command to all the churches to rise up and overturn this particular social norm for the time being. His priority is to teach them to respond to their bondage with Christ's unconditional love and devotion. So that's the slave. Point number two is serve the Lord by leading others. <coughs> Because Paul's priority is the preeminence of Christ in the life of the master as well. For the master, if Christ is not preeminent, then what is to keep him from viewing the slave as something less than himself? What is to keep him from treating the slave harshly? Or beating him like an animal or demanding more of him than he owed? And while doing those things, justifying it, with a logic and a reason that comes from his fallen, sinful mind. If Christ is not preeminent and we ignore the reality of the eternal in order to focus on this earthly life, then why not treat people as though they are expendable? With this mindset, though, and that as an end goal, we violate what Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And then verse 5 is oftentimes they break the text there and they put verse 5 with the next verses, but verse 5 is a transition verse that goes with both what came before and what came at, comes after. And it's kind of the kicker here. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul doesn't instruct the church to put a stop to slavery. His first priority is to teach everyone how to make Christ the center of life. Then the hope is that as the master starts treating the slave well, with respect and dignity, and the slave starts serving the master as an act of worship, it would be this really nice cycle that would just, the master would treat the slave with dignity and respect, that would motivate the slave even more to use his service as an act of worship and to respect the master, so he would work hard, and then that would motivate the master even more to pour more respect and, and dignity on the slave, and it would just be this really nice cycle. That is what would overturn the social norms of the day rather than Paul coming in and saying, do away with this. So Paul does something here that no one um, of the time would have probably done. He called the slaves to remain, in, remain as a servant and to obey their masters because in doing so they were obeying Christ. They were making Christ their number one priority. So the slave's faithful service is an act of worshiping Christ as Lord. And then on top of that, again, something that most people wouldn't do. He then called the masters to treat their slaves well because in doing so, they are displaying Christ-likeness. The master's treatment of slaves is an act of worshiping Christ as Lord as well. And since Jesus said to those who were in a better social position with means to help those in need who were in not as good of a social position, he said in Matthew 25, verses 40 and 45, he said, whatever you did or you did not do for one of the least of these, you did unto me. Because Jesus said that, there's this harsh, eternal reality for those who did evil to others, because in reality, you've done it unto Christ. And he tells those people in verse 41 of Matthew 25, to those who did evil unto Christ through, do, through mistreatment of other people, he said, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the preeminence of Christ in the life of the believer has to be the, the lens through which we view our job or anything that we do, how we manage or govern or anything that we do that's got to be it the preeminence of Christ Christ's preeminence means that in your life nothing in your life is more important than him he's number one his death 
his resurrection and the ascension to heaven have, have altered all of history. And it's altered every human life that has ever lived and ever will live. Nothing else should govern your life or shape your identity. Only Christ. And this is how it played out for the slaves and the masters of Paul's day. But what about our own day? Because I would say that Paul's priority, even though he's writing thousands of years ago, Paul's priority is the preeminence of Christ in the everyday life of every believer, including us. So what about our own day? So you have many people who spend, you know, I gave the example of what Brian Regan talked about. I give the example of the guy that I worked with at Kohl's. We have a lot of people who go to their job every day and they hate their job and they feel like all they do all day long is try to please a boss that can't be pleased. Anybody ever been in a situation like that before? What a, what a, a difficult situation to be in. You don't like what you do. You never can do anything right according to those who are in charge. I've had those jobs. Paul's instruction to the slave is work at it. We mentioned that he said work at it as you're working for the Lord, but what he says is work at it with all your heart. Not for human masters, but as working for the Lord. And that means when you go to a job that you hate and you feel like you can never please your boss, that means you're set free from this endless cycle of trying to please a person or a group of people that can't be pleased. Because your job takes on a new meaning. It has a new importance when you view your work as serving Christ. Those two years that I was the overnight supervisor at Kohl's, um, those were two of the worst years of my life. Um, I had a manager that, he was a terrible manager of people, he was a terrible manager of operations, and yet he never owned any of the shortcomings that happened in our store. <coughs> it was always someone else's fault. So it wasn't fun. Um, he wasn't even my direct boss, but he, he seemed to think that he needed to deal directly with me, so I had to deal with him all the time. But I tried to view that job as a ministry, and because of that, God presented many opportunities for me to share the gospel with people that I worked with. <coughs> he gave me opportunities to share, some, share biblical wisdom for life, for people who worked with me, beside me, worked under my authority. Um, and I would say most of the people I worked with were really struggling with different things in life. Um, I'm not sure that anyone there, I could say, man, life's going well for you. Um, but God gave me all kinds of opportunities to share the gospel and to share wisdom, biblical wisdom with them. And I would get questions like this. You've been married for 10 years? Like, how do you make that last? Because 
not very many people today have a marriage that, or have parents who are married longer than 10 years. It seems to be a, a lifetime for some people. Or I'd get, so you were a pastor before? How can you believe in something that seems so unrealistic and not rooted in science? Those were some of my favorites. Um, or I'd get, because they knew I was a pastor at one point, I would get lots of questions for, from people to be praying for them about specific situations that were going on in their life. I also had people who attacked me because of my firmly held beliefs, but that gave me an opportunity then to defend my faith to not only that person who was attacking me, but everyone who was stuck working with me for the night had to listen to all the apologetics arguments. So, so I had, I was, I tried to view it as a ministry and God really did give me a lot of opportunities to share my faith. If the slave is doing his work as if it's an act of worship of Christ, then he can work alongside, or he can work, and he can do all of his work with his whole heart, even if his master's evil, and therefore not worthy of such respect. We sometimes have a boss who's not really worthy of that respect. Um, I, when I was younger, and there's probably still a little bit of a piece of this in me if it gets riled up. But when I was younger, I was very much of the mindset of, if you respect me, I will give you respect. But if you disrespect me, fat chance getting it from me in return. Um, and I look back at situations and I, I owe people apologies. But um, that was, that, that I, and I admit, by the way, that that is not Christ-like in any way. <laughs> so so I, I, I know that. But when you do your task or whatever you're doing for Christ, he is worthy of everything. And so we're set free from this mindset that you have to be respected in order to offer respect because you're not doing your job or your service or whatever. You're not doing that for that person, you're doing it for Christ. And Christ is absolutely worthy of our best. And I, and again, that was a really difficult thing for me at Kohl's. Um, one time I had a, so as the operations supervisor overnight, we, we unloaded, we received shipments and unloaded shipments and, and then we stocked the floor and had things ready for the morning and stocked over stuff that we were overstocked in, in the warehouse. When I, I was supposed to be receiving what was considered a small truck load of stuff, um, a big truck load of stuff is like would be like 17,000 pieces on the truck. We were supposed to be getting a small one that's supposed to have like 8,000 pieces, and it was supposed to be broken into two categories, so the, the front was supposed to be one type of stock, and the back with a divider in the middle was supposed to be a, a different kind of stock. My instructions from the store manager was to unload all the stuff in the, that's in the back of the truck first, get that unloaded, run that to the floor, which means unbox everything and fill the shelves and then stock everything in the, all the overstock in the stock room, and then go back and do the same thing with the second load. So he was already gone, and I opened up the back of the truck and it was packed to the very back, which meant I think there was like 18,000 pieces on it. So it was a huge truck. 
Um, and it wasn't categorized. It was all mixed together. And so there was, a, there was no way, it was impossible for me to execute the plan the way that he wanted me to. So when he came in in the morning and things were not to his liking, he came into the warehouse and, <coughs> and berated me in front of my entire team. <coughs> um, it was really difficult for me to not tell him how much I did not respect him. Um, that type of disrespect was a common occurrence that I had there. So my heart wasn't in the job, as you can probably imagine. Um, but when you're working as to the Lord, it's much easier to do it with your whole heart because Christ is worthy of our best. And because I was the supervisor, I also had, I, I, I was on the flip side of that as well. I had people that worked under me, and I did my best to support them when management did not support them, and I did my best to encourage them when they were discouraged by other teams in the company because other teams were, there was a lot of fighting among teams. And I defended them when I was called on to give an account for whatever we did and on their behalf. <coughs> so I tried to, I really did try to view this that way so that I didn't become somebody who <coughs> slacked off on the job when the boss wasn't looking. I was the one in charge overnight. I could have made it so that it was really easy on myself because <coughs> I didn't have an authority figure looking over me. But I, I knew that that was not the work ethic that Christ calls me to, to demonstrate. All right. Wrap up real quickly here. You may be in one of those situations. Uh, it, it could be at work, or it could be at school, or it could be in a volunteer leadership position, or it could be a volunteer serving position. So we all find ourselves in situations like these. And I, I just want you to remember that God calls us all to reflect his glory and to reflect his unconditional love through our service or through our leadership in whatever situation you find yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your son sh demonstrated service. To, uh, he, he came as a servant, and he laid down his life on our behalf when we didn't deserve it. And so when we are in a position where we're serving or working and, and we're answering to someone higher than us, God, help us to do those things as if we're doing them for you. Let, let us know how to turn it into an act of worship. And if we're on the other side, if we're in the leadership position, let us treat those who are under us, whether it's a job where they're getting paid to do it or it's a volunteer situation, let us treat them with dignity and respect and, and demonstrate your glory and your unconditional love through our leadership. Let us imitate Christ who, who let go of glory and condescended to us because we were helpless without it. And he calls us to reflect that in our work ethic. In Jesus' name.